This is uh, the second week of our three-week series called Calling, Failing, Grace. And it's a vision series. Our vision, if you're new at St. Peter's, is to join God in the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of our city through communities transformed by the gospel. And in this series, we're focusing on a key part of our vision, communities transformed by the gospel. Because I'm convinced uh, that who we are as a community, who God desires us to be, is not the byproduct of a lofty vision, but the foundation of it. God brings his renewal in and through a community transformed by the gospel. So in this series, we are looking at the calling of St. Peter, his failing, and the grace God gave him. And in turn, we're exploring how God wants us to be a community of calling, a community of failing, and a community of grace. This week, uh, we're looking at the failing of St. Peter. Last week, we looked at his calling. And uh, the, the point of that sermon is that God first and foremost, calls us to follow Jesus over any vision statement. That we're called by Jesus and to Jesus and for Jesus. That's our calling. But this week, we have to look at how St. Peter fails that calling. And I get it. You know, talking about failure on a Sunday morning, this is not the sort of thing we get up excited to talk about. Uh, It is not a fun thing to do, especially when it's not just a sermon about failure in circumstance or happenstance. We're talking about deep, moral character failure. But it's a necessary conversation. Because failure is a part of who we are as individuals, and we can't pretend like it doesn't exist here as a community at St. Peter's. We can't turn a blind eye to failure. We have to walk into it head on. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the denial of failure, the reality of failure, and the role of failure. But Before we get into our passage, uh, we need to have a bit more of St. Peter's backstory in order to really comprehend the text at hand. Uh, We're going to be looking at the last half of Luke chapter 22. But first, let's look at a few highlights from Peter's life. Uh, Last week, we looked at how Peter was called by Jesus. And we see in that calling, uh, at first, humility. But as uh, uh, Peter starts to follow Jesus, we see he's a very bold man, a bit impulsive. Uh, And he takes risks over and over again that the other disciples don't take. Uh, For example, uh, Peter was the first one to step out on water, you know, because Jesus said, step out of the boat, walk on water. You know, none of the other disciples did it. Peter stepped out. And yes, he sank, but let's not overlook those first few steps. Uh, Another example, uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Peter is the one who responds and identifies Christ correctly. He says, Uh, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about what Peter heard here. I'm pretty sure Peter immediately went and got some t-shirts printed up. You know, like, who's the rock? This guy, you know. In light of this, what happens immediately before our passage today shouldn't surprise us. We're told a dispute arose among the disciples, and they were arguing about who was the greatest. And no names are named, but you can rest assured, Peter had a stellar argument laid out. I was called by Jesus by name. I walked on water. God revealed who Jesus is to me before the rest of you. 
He said he's going to use me, not you, to build his church. And that's our context. Peter, you know, uniquely called by God for God's purposes. A leader among the disciples and arguing with his, his fellow disciples about who's the greatest. So open your Bibles with me then to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31. So immediately after this argument, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. If Peter was concerned about who was the greatest, this would have brought him right back down to the planet Earth. Jesus doesn't call him Peter here either. He calls him Simon, which is not the name Jesus gave to him. And he calls him Simon twice. Simon, Simon. In a way, Jesus is saying to Peter, you're forgetting where you came from. You're forgetting that you're merely a man called to do uh, works for me that you could never accomplish on your own. Jesus anchors Peter back in who he is without him. Simon, Simon. And then Jesus says something to Peter that should have shook him to his bones. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus says to Peter, the, the greatest supernatural enemy known to mankind has you in his sights. He wants to sift you like wheat. Vigorous, relentless shaking was required to separate wheat kernels from debris. And Jesus tells Peter that Satan wants to cut him down, that Satan wants to shake his faith so violently that Peter would fall away from Jesus like debris. Jesus says, you're about to fail me. It's on the horizon. It's going to happen. And Satan wants to use this failure in your life to destroy your faith. Nobody wants to hear that. But then Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And look at how Peter responds in verse 33. Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death with you. I think... Honestly, we have to take Peter at his word here. I think he really believes this. He believes the hype about him. He's not even phased about this Satan stuff. He surely thinks, you know, well, gates of hell ain't prevailing against me, Jesus. I'm in it to win it. Uh, he seems, you know, based on the passage before, Peter understands that Jesus is heading towards imprisonment and crucifixion. He says, Jesus, I signed up all the way. You know, prison and death, I'm with you. But sometimes we just can't see what others see in us. The first time I headed on a tour across Canada in a band, it was a three-month tour. And my mom, you know, the day of, sat me down and she said, I don't know, love. You're just so family-oriented. I'm not sure this will be good for you. And I remember thinking, like, my mom just doesn't know me at all, which is what every angsty teenager thinks. But... Uh, all I ever wanted to do, you know, was go on tour, play shows, uh, sing some songs, sell some CDs, see the world. 
And I was on the brink of living out my vision. You know, I didn't need family. My family was my band. It was the van. It was the road, man. <laughs> and the tour, honestly, the tour was great. You know, first you know, month and a half was amazing. Uh, we toured in the summer, you know, which meant we didn't have to sleep in strangers' floors, which is good because I got fleas once doing that. But, you know, we got, we got to sleep uh, camping. We camped most of the tour. And in Alberta, you know, we staged an alien abduction to freak out our drummer. Uh, in Manitoba, you know, we drove the van into a pit of mud by accident. You know, just typical tour stuff. Uh, but by the time we got to Halifax, you know, it had been a while on the road. And, you know, every few days, we would try to find a payphone to call back home. And uh, for a lot of you, I know you're younger, a payphone was a phone located in the city where you could put coins into it and make phone calls. Very convenient. Uh, and in Halifax, it just really hit me. Like, I miss home. I miss my family. And so I called, and when my mom picked up, I just blurted out, I miss my mommy. <laughs> Total rock star moment. And she paused, and she said, love, I told you so. <laughs> I was in denial about just how family-oriented I was. My mom saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. I found out the hard way, homesick in Halifax. Turned out to be a great song title. Uh, Peter, in this passage, uh, he's in denial that his faith in Jesus could ever fail, and he doesn't see the possibility within himself. Now think about his calling. When Jesus calls him, he responds, by saying, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's what the calling of Jesus did in him. It brought him to a self-awareness of his own sinfulness. And yet, over time, it's easy to think that we've got our sinfulness under control or that our sin is just relegated to some areas of our lives. You know, we say to ourselves, well, yeah, I do this, but I would never do that. You know, I tell the small white lie to my boss, but I would... I would never lie to my friends. Sure, I flirt with guys and girls when I'm out, but I would never cheat on my spouse, you know, my wife or my husband or my boyfriend or my girlfriend. But what we're really doing is minimizing our sinfulness. It's bad, but not that bad. You know, and that's what Peter is doing here. He's denying that sin could possibly run so deep in his life, so much so that he will go on to deny knowing Jesus, that he would betray his Lord, the one he is assuredly going to die for. He's sinful, sure, but not that sinful. That's what Peter can't see in himself. But what does Jesus go on to say? Look at verse 34. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow, the, or crow this day until you deny me three times. The sun will rise. The rooster will crow. And with the same certainty, Peter is going to deny Jesus. It's hard for me to even put myself in Peter's shoes and imagine this. No one wants to hear that sin runs so deep in our lives that we will even fail the ones we love, that we will even fail our Lord. We deny that this sort of failure is possible in us because we don't want to acknowledge what it actually says about us. 
It says that we're helpless to our sin. It says that sin has more power over us than we do over it. It says that left to our own devices, we will end up doing the very things we swear we will never do. And Jesus, he knows this about us. He knows how truly broken we are and just how deeply we will fail him. Peter, after all, will deny him not just once, but three times. Even after he's been warned. We will fail Jesus because of how deeply sin runs in our lives. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what we want to deny about ourselves. We want to hold out the hope, you know, that there's something in us, some sort of strength, some sort of ability to follow Jesus and to carry out his call in our lives. And Jesus says, it's not possible because sin runs that deep. And it all plays out the way Jesus said it would. Judas betrays Jesus just as he said he would. He's arrested and he's handed over to the authorities just as Jesus said it would happen. And Peter will play his part in the unfolding drama. That's the reality of failure. And Jesus, he uses our failure to bring us to a point of seeing what we can't see in ourselves. Although Peter was in denial about just how deep his brokenness runs, he's going to discover that just because he can't see that in himself, it doesn't mean that it's not there. We carry on in Luke chapter 22, jump ahead to verse 54. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Three times, three people, three statements. To a servant girl, this would be a young, you know, preteen girl. Do you, you knew this Jesus guy. Woman, I do not know him. To another man who asks, he says, man, I do not, I don't know him. And finally, someone recognizes his accent. And Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That's what a Galilean sounds like. Um, then the rooster crows. From a safe distance while Jesus is on trial, Peter knowing him, Seeing this, denies knowing him three times. Then the rooster crows. Peter, he's not the man he thought he was. He can't be Peter. He can't be the rock. He can't be the guy Jesus called him to be on his own strength. He can only be Simon. And left to his own devices, he does the very thing he swore he would never do. He denies Jesus not just once, but three times. Three times. There is no denying his denial of Jesus. This wasn't something that happened by accident. 
And in his denial of Jesus, Peter confronts uh, himself, his cowardice, his betrayal, his inability, his failure. And in that moment of gut-wrenching failure, Luke writes in verse 61 and 63, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter can't simply recess back into the shadows. Jesus locks eyes with him. He sees him as he truly is. He connects with Peter in that most painful moment. And then Peter remembers. It strikes him. It happened just like Jesus said it would. And we don't want to miss how Luke refers to Jesus as Lord here. It's reminiscent of Peter's calling, but this time, instead of saying, depart from me, Lord, Peter's the one who departs. He walks away from the call of Jesus because he's unable to live up to it. Peter leaves and he weeps bitterly. And this isn't like a, you know, a composed cry. This isn't like a, a single teardrop uh, British cry, like how I cry. You know, that, that's not what's happening here. This is like heaving kind of cry. The Greek word for bitterly here uh, is used in another ancient Greek document to describe how a, a lion roars. Peter, you know, the, it was the lion roared ferociously. Same word. Peter left and wept ferociously. His reality was guttural remorse, overwhelming, powerful tears. This moment in Peter's life ends in deep pain and weeping. And for all of us, all of us, at some point in our journey towards Jesus, we will recognize that we simply can't do it on our own strength. We thought we could. We were doing well for a season, but then we reached the end of our rope. Our failures, however, they don't have to be as epic. You know, sometimes they are. Sometimes we just mess up so bad, we wonder if it could ever be repaired. But more often than not, it's just that sense that we're failing and we're trying to grasp onto something, but we can't seem to catch it. You know, maybe it's in our failure to read Scripture consistently or at all. Maybe it's in our failure to pray consistently or at all. Maybe it's in all the little ways that we deny Jesus every single day. You know, the failure to be kind to someone that you just don't really like. The failure to stop gossiping when you know you're gossiping. You know, the failure to care for the poor and the marginalized in our city. Or maybe in doing all of these things, you do all of these things, and yet you know you still fail to do them without developing some sense of smug self-righteousness. And we come to realize that we're failing Jesus because we simply can't do what he asks of us, because we're just too broken. We can't fulfill his call in our lives because we ultimately face ourselves, and we see time and time again we would prefer our own comfort our own safety, our own livelihoods. And if we're left to our own strength, if we're left to our own abilities, the reality is we will fail Jesus because he calls us to something we can't accomplish on our own. 
Now, I want to be careful here because it's really tempting, you know, to resolve this. You know, wrap it up, put a Band-Aid on it, put a bow on it, make it, you know, happier. Uh, but this passage doesn't resolve. It gives us some resolution. We'll have to look at some resolution, but it leaves us in the tension. Jesus goes on to be crucified and he dies. And Peter had to stay in that bleak, weighty reality of knowing that the last things Jesus heard him say were, I do not know the man. There's no quick band-aid to that. Failure, it was deep, it was painful, it was lasting. It's three days, three days before Jesus resurrects. For those three long days, Peter didn't truly understand that resurrection was on the horizon. He knew Jesus talked about rising, but he had no idea that it was truly coming. And sometimes that's just where we are. We don't see Jesus on the horizon. All we see is our failure to truly live up to his calling and our inability to, to, to do anything about it. The failure, it plays a role in our faith, and it's quite different than the role failure plays in our culture. There's a few predominant ways that our culture responds to failure. You know, there's the motivational response. I think of Henry Ford who said, uh, failure is the opportunity to begin again, only more intelligibly. There's some truth to this. Right? Like we can learn and our character can be developed as we fail and we learn, but what this perspective often misses is that sometimes our failure is because of a deep character flaw that more failure simply doesn't fix, it just exacerbates. Then there's the shame response. You know, think about any politician who's failed ever. You know, I know this might be hard to imagine. Imagine a politician who has failed teachers, just so dismal, like just, it's terrible. Um, what do we do, though? We shame them. We ridicule them. We insult them, we try to dehumanize them, and we, we try to get them out of office. We respond to failure by shaming them. Or uh, there's the hopeless response. Failure happens in our lives, things fall apart, and we think nothing good can come from this. It's meaningless. It's hopeless. But whether it's you know, the motivational response or the shaming response or just hopelessness, Jesus uses failure in a totally different way in our lives. It's completely different than how we usually respond to failure in our culture. In Peter's greatest failure, although Peter withdraws from Jesus, Jesus doesn't withdraw from Peter. He doesn't look away in disappointment or disgust. Rather, he looks directly at Peter. He locks eyes with Peter so that Peter will eventually know that what Jesus sees in that moment is what Jesus has always seen in Peter. The denial, as painful as it would have been to Jesus, is of no surprise. Peter's shortcomings, his cowardice, the depths of his sin, it's of no surprise to Jesus. Jesus, he's always seen these things in Peter. And yet, and this is important, Jesus doesn't send Peter into this place of failure without something to hold on to before it's resolved. First, he says to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Peter, uh, he's going to fail. Jesus knows this. He knows that this failure can be used to destroy his faith, but Peter's, 
faith is not totally his own. Jesus says, I'm praying for your faith. I will see to it that your faith is sustained. Then he says, when you turn again. Jesus lets Peter know in advance, you will get through this. It might not be easy. It might get dark. You might not know where you're going, but there is hope. You'll get through this. And then he says, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. You see, there will come a time when Peter's failure in the hands of Jesus becomes a source of strength and comfort to others. He's giving Peter a sense of purpose, that his failure won't be meaningless. He's praying for him. Peter, he's giving him hope. He's giving him purpose. But for Peter... The resolve, these things, the time isn't yet. Which means uh, there is room in the Christian life to be in this space where we know that Jesus has said these things, that they're true, but we're not sure how they're true in the moment. There's a disconnect between what, what we know what's true and what we're actually experiencing. There's room in the Christian journey to be in the dark, to be confused, to be wondering where Jesus is. And the truth is, that might be precisely where Jesus wants you for a season. But no matter how bleak it gets, don't forget what he said to Peter. Don't forget that Christ didn't send him into the dark unprepared. Don't forget that Jesus has always seen us for who we truly are. You see, if failure is left in our own hands, we'll just go to self-hatred. We'll just hate ourselves because we just fail. If it's left in Satan's hands, he'll use our failure to try to destroy our faith. But when failure is left in Jesus' hands, he uses our failure not just to refine our character, but to deepen our faith in him. He offers us his prayers He offers us hope. He offers us purpose. Um, (coughs) But but paradoxically, he says that your your failure, it's not just going to be seeds for sorrow and tears. Your failure will ultimately be redemptive. In St. Paul, he had a sense of this. This is why he writes to Timothy, even if we are faithless, Jesus remains faithful. And when that truth and that reality gets into our broken bones, it changes us. So, what does Peter's failing then tell us about being a community of failing? We want to be a community that fails well together. We don't want to deny or minimize failure as a community. That will be our proclivity. We don't have that luxury if we're called by Jesus because his calling will expose our failure which means we have to be willing to be exposed. We have to be willing to take off our masks and the fronts and admit that we're not nearly happy or as fine or as successful as we like to portray that we are. We don't minimize how we're struggling. Rather, we, we invite people into the struggle. We share our brokenness. We share our sins with one another. But the The reality is then, failing well as a community means failing well with each other. Because if we're going to fail Jesus, you can rest assured, we're going to fail one another. 
It might just be the way I fail like 90% of you who expect an email response within a day. You know, like there's just failure. It might be the failure of a small group leader not living up to your expectations. It might be the failure of a friend not showing up in your time of need. We will fail one another. But Jesus shows us how to respond to failure. He doesn't look at Peter's failure and shame him. He offers him compassion. He actually enters into Peter's life as he is. So we don't shame one another's failings. We offer compassion. Because that's what our city needs. Our city doesn't need a community that pretends to be doing just fine. Our city thinks it's doing just fine. What our city needs is a triage. Where broken people can come and admit that they are broken people. Not be shamed for that. But offered compassion. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It's not that I'm advocating failure. I'm not saying go out and blow up your life. Instead, we recognize its reality in us, and we see the role that failure can have in our faith. We can see the times we failed Jesus, and we can grieve and repent. We can see the times we failed others, and we can grieve and we can repent, which means when we see others fail, we can grieve with them. Repent with them. But failing is never the end. Failing in the hands of Jesus is used to deepen our faith and our reliance upon him. And in his hands, it will also become a source of strength and comfort to others because we can boldly and truly proclaim, no matter what you've done or how far you have gone or what you have failed in your life, Jesus looks at you with compassion. He will not look away from you. He will offer you grace and his presence even there. So failure, it it cultivates a a community of vulnerability and honesty. A community that takes off our masks and says we need Jesus. If we don't have him, we will shipwreck our lives. We need Jesus. But in doing that, and responding to his call in humility and, and becoming a community of vulnerability and honesty, we will discover the power of Christ's compassion and grace and his ability to transform us because Jesus is not content to leave us as failures. But the good news is that we'll have to wait until next week. <laughs>